Okay, I'm obsessed with Audible because it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And with female writers and heroines, celebrity narration, multicast productions, Audible has you covered for every type of excitement that you're looking for, including true crime and mystery. And I know all of you love that too. For example, right now, I'm listening to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. That's audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. With four daughters and two on a dance team, I can tell you we go through a lot of mascara in my house, but I'm crazy about L'Oreal Paris new Panorama Mascara, which catches every lash for corner to corner for maximum volume. If you're looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank, this is yours. The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. I've been using it for about two weeks now, and I feel like my eye has completely opened up, and the girls are crazy about it too. They've got a tapered brush to catch every lash, one of the best mascara wands that I've ever used. And like I said, this luxe appearance of this gold package you got to get it. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. L'Oreal Paris New Panorama Mascara. You're going to love it. The amazing Kate Casey. Welcome back to another episode of Reality Life with Kate Casey. I hope that you had a great weekend. I'm sure you were like me, waiting with bated breath for the end of The Undoing. But I promise you there's another great show on HBO that I'd love for you to watch. It is a docuseries called Murder on Middle Beach. I've spoken about it before. It is directed by Madison Hamburg. There have been three episodes thus far. For 10 years, Madison has been leading what he calls a double life because he hadn't told most of the people he knew that his mother, Barbara Beach Hamburg, was found murdered in the backyard of his Madison, Connecticut home in 2010. And with every episode, there's archival footage and interviews with family members. And you're learning more about Barbara and the complicated life she was living. And I promise you, you will be just as mesmerized as you've been with The Undoing. This episode I'm so excited about and is probably one of my favorites because I have been trying for so long to track down the filmmakers. Brothers Jules and Gideon Nande are celebrated documentary filmmakers who have made two of the most notable films about terrorist attacks. Their documentary 9-11 is a 2002 documentary film about the September 11th attacks in New York City in which two planes were flown into the buildings of the World Trade Center, resulting in their destruction and the deaths of more than 2,000 people. Jules taped one of the only three known recordings of the first plane hitting the North Tower Tower 1 of the World Trade Center in those attacks. The video camera that Jules was using that captured Flight 11 crashing into the World Trade Center is now on display in the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. The brothers were in the process of making a documentary on New York firefighters following Antonio Tony Benetados, a rookie firefighter or probie, through his experiences in the New York City Fire Department Academy training and into a firehouse. On the morning of September 11th, Jules accompanied several firefighters as they headed out to investigate reports of a gas leak in Lower Manhattan, leaving Gedeon in the firehouse to continue filming with Benedados. 
On the way to Lower Manhattan, Jules and the firefighters had stopped at the corner of Lisbonard and Church Streets when American Airlines Flight 11 flew right over them. Jules filmed its impact as it flew directly into the North Tower. So Jules went with the FDNY into the North Tower as they responded to that incident. He entered the lobby of the North Tower with the FDNY and filmed the fire chiefs as they set up a command post and sent firefighters up the stairs. While inside, Jules filmed the evacuating civilians and firefighters' reactions to subsequent events, including the second plane hitting the South Tower, the debris and jumpers falling from the upper floors and obstructed communications. When the South Tower began to collapse, he took shelter with Battalion 1 Chief Joseph Pfeiffer and the remaining firefighters, using his camera's floodlight to help them gather the wounded, lost, and deceased as they evacuated the North Tower. He followed the firefighters as they headed north and tried to establish another command post. But meanwhile, Gedeon filmed Benedados, by now the only firefighter left in the firehouse, taking calls from the other departments, but eventually took to the streets out of worry for his brother. He walked for some time, filming people's reactions and damage done by the flying debris, and managed to film the impact of United Airlines Flight 175 into the South Tower. Realizing that he could not get any closer to the World Trade Center, he returned to the firehouse where he filmed the arrival of various off-duty firefighters, and he caught the arrival of retired Battalion 1 Chief Larry Burns, who was unable to follow him, and Benedados as they left for the World Trade Center. So Gedeon resumed filming the people's reactions as the South Tower collapsed before returning to the firehouse and joining a trio of off-duty firefighters as they headed out to the disaster area. Unable to follow the firefighters to the North Tower, he remained in the area and filmed his surroundings. So when the North Tower collapses, the Nandes fled with the rest of the people still in the area. Jules and Chief Pfeiffer took shelter between two cars before returning to the World Trade Center to assess the situation. Less than a block away, Gedeon helped an FBI agent carry a civilian who had been overcome by the dust before making his way to a deli to recuperate. Worrying for Jules, he attempted to return to the World Trade Center's ruins, but was turned away by police patrols. He then returned to the firehouse and filmed the returning firefighters' reactions to the attacks. Meanwhile, Jules returned to the Chief Pfeiffer's group and had an emotional reunion with his brother that I have never forgotten. The Naudet's video footage has become some of the most comprehensive on-site coverage of the 9-11 attacks in New York, and as I mentioned, the film is one of only two sources of video footage of Flight 11 striking the World Trade Center. It is a must-must-watch. I have put that on my list of must-watch documentaries. So years later, they make November 13th, Attack on Paris, which is a three-part Netflix series about one of the most devastating days in French history, chronicling the events of November 13th, 2015, when terrorists attacked six locations around the city, including the Stade de France during a soccer match, and the Bataclan Theater during an Eagles of Death metal concert, killing a total of 130 people with hundreds more seriously injured. November 13th, Attack on Paris serves as an oral history compiled of interviews with survivors, witnesses, responders, and politicians, including then-president of France, Francois Hollande, who was at the soccer arena when the three suicide bombers struck the exterior. So the first part of the series focuses on the attacks at the stadium and the cafes and the restaurants, 
where gunmen fired into crowds from the street and one terrorist blew himself up inside a cafe. The second part is devoted to the Bataclan massacre, and the third episode continues to cover the Bataclan attack once it became a hostage situation. In a split second, couples were separated, strangers were thrust together in a time of crisis. What were the instincts of those trapped in an impossible situation? Do you play dead? Do you run? Do you rush the attacker? We may never know. But as you will hear, they explain, it is the wave of humanity that occurs in dark moments that keeps us moving forward. I always think of my sister explaining that it was what she witnessed on 9-11 when she left her office at the World Trade Center and walked miles home. A restaurant owner handing out hot towels so that passerbys could wash their ash-covered faces. A sneaker store owner handing out sneakers to women stumbling with broken heels. People passing their phones if they were lucky enough to get a cell connection. We will always find the light holders in the darkest moments. For me, the story of Valerie and Nicola that they tell at the end is the most emotional. And I have to tell you, I hung up and I sat for a few minutes and I cried. And I just think about it and I could cry again. And you know what? It's okay if you do too. Because, you know, it's been a hard year for everyone. And I just try to remember that if the people featured in this documentary, both of these documentaries have taught us anything, it's that there's always hope. And there's always humanity and there's always love around us. And that is always what will propel us. So I give to you my interview with Jules and Gedeon in one of my most favorite interviews. They are spectacular filmmakers. Here we go. Jules and Gedeon, this is a huge honor. I have been a huge fan of your work. Two of your documentaries are amongst my most favorite. I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Kate, for having us. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit about how you got into filmmaking. I know that you moved to the United States when you were teenagers, and then you went to the Tisch School of Arts. How did you get into filmmaking? Well, it's uh, <clears throat> we're a bit of shame to 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 tell you the truth. Uh, we had to basically cheat away through uh, Tisch <laughs> NYU uh, in order to to get a, an education. Um, we arrived from Paris, uh, moved to New York in the luggages of our parents. Uh, that was back in '89, but our parents didn't have enough money to send us both to Tisch School, the, the film school of, of NYU. And so, one of us got in officially. That was me, Gideon. And uh, but I took twice as many credits. Uh, gave half of the credits to Jules, who pretended to be me, but went to different classes with different teachers. And somehow it worked out. It worked out for almost five years, four, <laughs> four and a half years. And, uh, and, but but we, we, we felt kind of bad, but that, that was the only way we could uh, learn the, you know, this, this amazing profession, uh, you know, it was the only way we could get cameras, it was the only way we could uh, get an editing room, it was the only way we could uh, learn anything, and, and, and NYU was, Tisch School was just the place where to, you wanted to, to learn about movies. What was the first project that you worked on? Oh, uh, I think we were, that, that was before that. That, that was, uh, Jules, you were nine years old. And, Correct, uh, and you were 12. 
Yes. And, uh, and you were still we... screaming at me. That was where it all started. <laughs> I think the little brother and older brother, I was the actor, he was the director. And uh, voilà. the dynamic has not changed too much since then. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. You, you, you became the big brother now. Well, we, we alternate our roles. So. so tell me about how the project for 9-11 was developed. Um, I think uh, 9-11 started, well, at first, I think, like every little uh, boy's fascination with the big red trucks and the uh, sirens and all that. But especially um, when we came to, to, to the U.S. and when we were at, uh, at NYU, um, we reconnected to, with a friend uh, that we knew from Paris, actually a high school friend from Gédéon. And she had married a typical New York City firefighter. Uh, James Hanlon, who ended up uh, becoming our very, very close friend. And he had he was this true New York storyteller with this Irish accent. He was an actor and all that. And he would tell us uh, among, uh, when we were having these long, very French dinner with lots of uh, wine and all that, he would tell us the magic of that uh, what happens inside of the firehouse. That's weird, strange, you know, uh, uh, um, kind of brotherhood, very secret, but it was absolutely fascinating, that sense of family, that sense of these people who are running into uh, literally uh, a building on fire to, to help each other, but also th that the way they depend on each other, that family unit that they have, that immediately struck us as something we wanted to, to show. And we we did some research and we partnered with uh, with our friend James and uh, and we said, but what would be the best way for people to discover what it's like to be a firefighter is let's follow a young rookie firefighter from, uh, they call it probies, during his nine months probationary period. And let's try to find a kid who has no family in the fire department. So like the audience, he's kind of a virgin in that department. He's there, we're going to discover through his eyes, you know, the training coming in, that weird and magical family, the danger, but also that, um, that bond that, uh, that they have. And, and we started, we went to the fire department who said, yes, it had been the first time since 1975, I think that they have allowed cameras in the firehouse, but um, the, the firefighters were vouching for us and all that. And so we go to, um, we go to James Firehouse, which is Engine 7 Ladder 1, which is the second closest to the World Trade Center. And, uh, and uh, we get a June there. What? That was in June. Back in in June, June, 2001. 2001. And uh, Tony, our probie, had just finished uh, the academy. And I think June 6th is when he comes in and, uh, and will go and we would uh, go to every single um, a time he would go to the firehouse, we would stay with him, whether it was 12 hours or 24 hours, whether it was a night shift, a day shift, we were there, not sleeping, being, uh, being just like him, awake all night, terrified that uh, their fire will be called for a fire and we won't be ready or we'll be asleep or, you know, the usual thing. So, and, and the magic of, of the documentary is we not only were, were discovered that world, but started to be accepted ourselves. We were kind of the, the little probies. It was difficult starting to film because you have to understand that the motto in a firehouse, it's a bit like Vegas, what, say, what uh, happens in the firehouse stays in the firehouse. And so to see, as they would say, you know, two little frogs with cameras coming in into their, their firehouse, 
at first, they did not know what to make of us. And so they resorted to a fantastic device, which was whenever we would film, they would say the most incredible curse words, <laughs> ensuring that we would not be able to use anything at all that we filmed. But, you know, that it's normal. We know the, the, the drill. You have to earn the trust. It's not given lightly, and especially not in, in these settings. And um, and we started, and I think we listened to our uh, uh, maternal grandmother, who always used to tell us, you know, if you want to get to, to to people like this, go through their stomachs. And so I started to cook uh, my grandmother's recipe. Of course, the only one that shows up in the documentary is the disaster that I made, but which was the funny, lamb. You know, just making one yeah. leg of lamb <laughs> for uh, for these twenty. Uh, uh, giant eaters so of course i should have done six at least but it, it's one of these you know weird things where you realize that uh, uh life is much more stranger than fiction is you know that disastrous meal was september 10 and it was really the moment i think i remember very well turning to gedeon and we saw that we were finally getting accepted it was a moment we had been uh, they had told us about you know the moment where we know that we're truly accepted by the firehouse. It's the moment they really lay into you. They really make fun of you. They really, uh, you know, that means you're part of the family. And so that was really the moment where we kind of looked at each other and everyone was having a great time. It was a, it was a light night. And, uh, and, and I remember the moment saying, that's it, we're accepted. That's fantastic. We can finally start in a way, you know, showing what it's like. And uh, except it was September 10 and the next uh, morning, uh, everything changed. So one of you goes on a, to probe a gas leak, and that one of me. you and one of you stays with the firefighters. And can you tell everybody about this footage that you got? There are only three people in the entire world that were able to capture the moment that the first plane went into the building, and one of you are responsible for that. So if you could tell yes. me a little bit about that. So yeah, and so. It's about, so we've done a 24, which means we've, we've been in the firehouse for 24 hours. The probie is supposed to be relieved around nine o'clock, which is the normal shift change. But it's what, 8.15, uh, we've had run all night long, we're exhausted. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, we know it's almost the end. We have day jobs that we had taken to pay for tapes. We were using tapes at that time and all that. But 8.15, okay, last run of the day, especially for me. Gideon, you have to understand, Gideon is the uh, professional uh, cameraman, the master of that. I'm just, you know, the little, uh, the, the little I, I had not picked up a camera ever before. And so I'm just learning how to film because we had decided let's have Tony is the main focus, is the probie, but to, uh, to, to have a little bit more material, I was assigned to film the, the chiefs. And in that morning was Chief Pfeiffer. And so I go in his car, we, we have um, it's order of gas, not too far, a couple of blocks away, routine call. Um, we go down, we have other units. I don't see Gedeon, but as far as I'm, uh, I'm concerned, I'm sure he's with the probie. They're probably milling around the scene, but you know, there's about 25, 30 firefighters. I don't see him, that's fine. So I keep my usual thing. I film the World Trade Center, kind of a cliche. That's kind of uh, my first shot always. Uh, again, amateur uh, videographer at that point. And as I'm filming the, the chief, there, there is an odor of gas. We have called the gas company. There's nothing you know, serious, nothing uh, all that routine. And as we're milling around and I'm filming, my camera is on, I remember hearing that roar that suddenly mm -hmm. becomes louder and louder. And it's, you know, not, not used to, we're used to hearing planes in New York, 
this was different. And I remember as I'm looking up, trying to, to see it, and I see the plane that goes in between two buildings and disappears behind another one. And so since my camera is on, I just turn around, look, where is, it, where is that uh, plane going? It's a beautiful day. There's not a cloud in the sky. And as I'm seeing, almost in slow motion in my head, it uh, crashes right in the middle of the One World Trade Center. So there's always that moment where uh, time becomes very elastic. It's, it's almost like a movie. It suddenly, time becomes incredibly slow, and these five seconds in my head is 10 minutes. It's just there's so many things happening in front of my eyes that my brain has no time to process all this. But very quickly, uh, I'm, I, I see the, the, the firefighters thing, I think, oh shit, and then jumping into their cars. And so it's the usual thing. I've been riding the car for three months. I go with the chief, I go in the back of his car, film nonstop, and we'll arrive at the One World Trade in about four minutes flat and proceed to go inside and we'll film there, I think, as the only person with a video camera inside of the World Trade Center. That is amazing. That and, and there's a moment where you said, I saw somebody on fire um, and I chose not to film them. And I kept wondering, as I rewatched it, what you did see that did not in, was not included in the film. Um, what is the most memorable thing that you saw that you did not include? Well... I think that was one of the image, of course. And again, you have to understand, we've lived, my brother and I, a very sheltered life, especially in terms of, you know, um, uh, facing death. You know, I think the, the only time we had seen the face of death was probably uh, a, a much older relative in a casket in, the, in church for the, for, for, or at the cemetery, but never so immediate, so raw, so horrible. You know, someone burning alive in front of you, I think, is one of the most horrible thing you can you can see and so i think independently but ended up doing the same thing should and i is that's the moment i think where we decided to censor ourselves me on my side because seeing this image that was so horrible that i had seen unfortunately and i was trying to protect of course other people but i think selfishly myself it i I realized it's too horrible no one should see this there is a certain dignity in death that i believe should be should be given and showing that was not what we we wanted at all i think but um, and i think it was after what well, throughout that day all the, the the images of people who had died or who died in front of us or in the following weeks and months to, when we would go dig these are the most complicated images that's at least for me stay with me but none of that needed to be included and we still believe in our work as you've seen in the november 13 documentary we're not a, a big proponent of of showing images like this i think mm-hmm. in that case they would have been get gratuitous and again it's anyway you, you really do uh, have a, a gift of telling the personal stories but your story kind of melts into the film because there's this incredible moment when the two of you are reunited and i don't think anyone who watched that film didn't have like lose their breath for a moment. That was such a special moment. All these years later, do you get as emotional watching it um, as you felt in that moment? Oh, that scene for me always gets to me. I, I, you know, I'd love to know what you think, but for me, it is, you know, every documentary you make, you have scenes which are 
even though you've seen it over and over, you've edited and all that, there's always a scene at least that really grips your heart. For me, that's the one. I will always, you know, I have tears come to my eyes whenever I see that scene, which is actually a fantastic story, how it, how it happened today, if you want to talk about uh, Dory and yeah, how no, that no, was. And, and, and just for the little story before that, we, when we first uh, tried to, to edit the, the, the film, we, we tried to put ourselves out of the story. Because we thought this is not about us. This is about the firefighters and everybody who passed away on, on, on that day. But however we would tell the story, there was always some something weird. It was not working. And it's really a mother who said, look, you, you, whether you like it or not, uh, you're part of it. You, you part, you, 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 you're all over the, 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 those, this footage. And, and, and the scene that Jules is talking about is, Sam, Sam, for me, always brought tears to me is uh, uh, I'm, I'm back at the firehouse uh, that morning uh, first. Uh, I wait for Jules to show up, uh, wanted to believe that he's, he's not dead, uh, that I still have my brother that is going to show up any minute. Uh, it takes the bastard four hours to come back. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but he comes back, and which is more than uh, you know some people uh, anyway. And uh, and and the incredible thing is that a, a very good friend of ours who was working in the neighborhood at that time had uh, joined us at the firehouse to to know if we had made it, if we were alive. Uh, his name is Dory. And uh, he's the one who picked up the camera and filmed her retrouvaille, the, the uh, got uh, you know together. And we we didn't know that he filmed us when we uh, meet again, when 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 we realize that Jules and I that we each other are alive. It's only I think a month after looking at all the footage that we we saw each other basically <laughs> crying in each other's arms, and we thought. But, who filmed that? And it's, <laughs> it was a friend, Dory. And, uh, and, so her mother uh, has adopted him since then because it's the best uh, best video she's ever seen of her, <laughs> of her two uh, her two sons. So yeah, yeah, but it, it gets us every time. Did yeah. you keep in touch years later with all of the men that you got to know through that experience, and, and especially Tony? Like, whatever happened to him? <laughs> So Tony is now a father of three, and I think he just made a captain. So oh, the good. little, uh, the little uh, young, uh, the young boy is now not only a father but an officer. But uh, no, we've we've kept in touch. I personally have been um, became incredibly close to Chief Pfeiffer, mm -hmm. uh, who saved my life numerous times. We talk about once a week, we see each other a lot. We've traveled together extensively um, to uh, between France and New York because I've, as I am a giant groupie of all the firefighters and, and try to find every excuse to hang out with them. <laughs> uh, whenever they would, um, they would send uh, uh, people to France to talk to other uh, fire departments, I would be there as their unofficial translator and uh, tourist guide. Or when we go to Paris, I'll organize their trips and all that. So very, very close to Chief Pfeiffer, uh, which is a man I, I, I adore and appreciate so much. And so, um, yeah, so it's, you know, these... These links and these 
um, relationships that are formed through these moments of, of terror, these moments of, of loss, but these moments also of, of life um, are, are, are incredibly powerful uh, bonds that are almost unbreakable and, and stays with us. Yes, certainly. Um, and to think that 40, almost 40 million people watch that um, a year after. And I know a lot of people watch it every year, just as a reminder. Are you um, really taken with how that film was watched by pe so many people and continue to watch by so many people? For for us, I, it it was it, it was mind boggling. We we never expected so many people to 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 watch it. But uh, at the end of the day, um, it feels good to know that, um, that 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 people realize that yeah, this is what those firefighters uh, did uh, that morning, and and the weeks and months after. Uh, but but it's it's a good reminder to everyone in, in in America and in the world that their fire department are doing exactly that every single day of the year. And when you see a fire truck pass by, please say hello. Please please be, be reminded to to salute them, to to make a sign, anything, because yeah. those are our fathers and mothers, and and. And those are people who never know if they're going to get back home, uh, you know, after a shift uh, on, on any given day. And, and they deserve, they deserve so much. I agree. So years later, you make another film. Of course, you made a ton, ton in between. You're prolific filmmakers. But I come across um, November 13, Attack on Paris. And I felt a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know more about those attacks. So I thank you for that film because I think it's a great way to remind us, it's an equalizer to remind us all that no matter what country you're from, we've all experienced traumatic experiences and it, it bonds us. So tell everybody a little bit about how that project came to be because unlike 9-11, this is more of an oral history and you were able to get so many perspectives, survivors, politicians, journalists. How did you get involved with this project? Well, I think this project is actually, yeah, we have kind of a, they're bookend projects. You have nine, we started by 9-11 where we're, we're very young. We're very young just as ourselves and, and as filmmakers, I think. Uh, we did not have the level of maturity. And for us, November 13 is kind of us at almost, you know, they're, they're getting to the top of our of our game of really doing something very mature with the 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 all that we had understood about loss, about trauma, about you know uh, life itself. And strangely enough, everything starts, uh, I think, because of 9/11, because um, it is right after the attacks, which happens in Paris, the city where we live for you know all of our childhood before moving to New York. In 2015. And exactly. And so in 2015, when uh, on that uh, Friday, no November 13, when it happens, we're like everyone glued to our television. We're calling all of our friends. We can't find our parents that who were in the neighborhood. Finally, we, we reached them. But in the weeks after, it's actually I receive a phone call from Chief Pfeiffer, who had at that time 
uh, went up the ranks of the fire department, had become um, uh, chief of counterterrorism for all of the New York City fire department, wow. and uh, calls me and said, uh, Jules, can you ha uh, help um, arrange a trip to France? Because I'd like to come with heads of counterterrorism of fire departments from the biggest cities in, uh, in the U.S., as well as people from the FBI and, and state departments to understand and go to France and meet with all the people from that night to understand the lessons that we can take and when it will happen, how we can do, react the right way, what worked, what didn't work. And, and so maybe, with, Jules, if yeah. I may, you, you could tell the audience what happened a little bit on November 13th. Yeah, so November 13th, it's true. It's, uh, so no, on November 13th, um, three teams of terrorists uh, will attack uh, um, a, about eight different places in, in Paris. First, three suicide bombers uh, detonate at the uh, soccer stadium, which at that point holds 70,000 people. Uh, then another team stops at six different cafes and either shoot with machine gun the, uh, the terraces and the inside, and one blows himself up in a cafe itself. And all this accumulates in another team of three uh, um, terrorists who uh, attack a um, rock concert at a very famous and old uh, 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 concert theater in the middle of Paris. And altogether, at the end of that evening, 130 people would have died and about 500 uh, wounded. It was really shocking because of the, one, the sophistication of the accumulation of attacks, uh, which in 55 minutes attack eight different places all around. They attack a stadium, the cafes, the, 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 the rock venue. And so you don't, it's almost like any, anyone and everyone can be attacked. You can be having a cafe, you're not a journalist, you're not a military, you're not first responders, you have nothing. It's just, and I think that's why it's considered almost like the 9-11 of, of France. It really left the same amount of trauma wherever people were. People remember where they were during that night, what, when they first heard it, who they knew from there. And so it is the, the, the for France, the events are, are as, as big as 9-11. And so when we, we, we go there, for us, we understand the gravity and all that. But we're, during that trip where I am, and we are with the, uh, uh, the uh, firefighters and big heads of them from, from Los Angeles, from Chicago, from Washington, from New York, and we're starting to understand what happened, we see the exact same pattern in a way of the reaction by the first responders and the civilians, which means the thing that had saved us and had pushed us to do the documentary, whether it was 9-11 or November 13, was that sense that when you see the worst of humanity, the best always rises to the surface. So we had true. seen it on September 11 of these incredible firefighters putting 80 pounds of gear, going up 100 stories high to go save people, knowing full well that a lot of them would die. We saw it in the civilians helping each other out, coming down the stairs, saying one more flight, one more flight, carrying each other. And then New York, you know, we're not normally very friendly to each other. Try to take a cab that belongs to someone else. You'll see the most incredible curse word that appears. But when it matters, when it's important, 
New York, like all cities, I think, has a tendency to really kind of um, hang, hang in there together and kind of really become a place where we help each other. And so as much as we had seen that on September 11, November 13 was the same thing. We discovered in the stories, the civilians, for example, would protect each other. At the cafes, they jumped uh, uh, on top of the other to protect them from the bullets. In the, uh, in the, the concert hall, in, um, they would uh, help each other exit through the window, carry each other, drag each other. You see these moments of humanity where you don't expect them. That's the great thing. You know, when you normally you would say, oh, my God, if there's something terrible happens, people will be selfish, will be, you know, it's kind of the Titanic, push everyone, jump into the lifeboat and just do whatever, whatever you need. But what we see is when, when, when these things happen, people are truly amazing and are truly good and will help each other at the risk uh, to themselves and will always try to, to, to counterbalance that evilness that we sell. And that was, I think, the most important of why we wanted to do these, these, these documentaries, whether we were in the middle of it or wanted to do it. Because at the moment where life is a little bit bleak, you turn on the TV, you, open, you turn on the radio and all that, it's a little bit uh, depressing. But to see these examples of beauty, of love, of uh, of seeing the best of us rise to the surface. This is the most incredible vaccine that we need for the depression we're living in right now. I did worry a bit about both of you thinking the mental health toll it must take on a filmmaker when you have this kind of material. How did you cope with all that footage, with all those interviews for both projects? As uh, as Jules said, um, I mean, we, we I mean, it's, something happened uh, after September 11. It's as if um, the, the, the shock was so violent of, of, of what we saw, what we witnessed, that there was almost like a, a break <laughs> in inside of uh, of us and. Um, I think this is the best way I can put it. Uh, and uh, just realize that the best way to put this break together, to, to glue back uh, personalities, uh, a psyche, a uh, uh, spirit, um, is, was and is to, to, to be in contact with uh, people who've been through the worst. Mm -hmm. But somehow they're... The incredible spirit, their, their resilience is, 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 is the most amazing cure to, to or the most amazing glue to us, <laughs> to put us back together. It's as if we need now people who've been through a horrible thing to, to show us a way. <laughs> to, uh, it was easy after September 11 uh, to become cynical. It was easy after September 11 um, to become desperate or depressing, or de I mean depressed, uh, to, to, to look at the, uh, you know, the, 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 the glass half empty, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to be privileged to be among people who've been uh, through horrible things in their life, but yet manage to see the, the best side of life is uh, for us the best cure 
to uh, to well, the best way to 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 be inspired in life. What is the what is the one story from the the November thirteenth project mm -hmm. that still stays with you? Hmm. There is there there's so many stories because again that night we just in the documentary even though it's three hours long we we just show 40 stories out of the 4,000 that there was that night. Now, there is always, and as you said, you know, when we were talking about scenes that make you kind of always cry, the, the, the moment when Marie, that amazing uh, person, you have to understand, so for, the, for, for your, uh, your viewers, Marie is one of the hostage because at the concert hall, 11 people are taken hostage by two of the terrorists and will stay for about an hour and a half, two hours, locked with them in a very narrow hallway as they're waiting for the terrorists to either blow themselves up kill, or kill them all. And uh, the, as the SWAT team is preparing to, to try to liberate. And so their entire story, and Marie, which is this typical French Parisian in a way, with this incredible sense of humor. And when we talk about humanity, these people have been are staring at two terrorists with suicide vests on and AK-47s who just killed 130 people around them. And yet they still find strange moments of humor in the middle of all that. And I guess that's a very human trait of, you know, your brain does crazy thing to try to protect yourself. And so the sense of humor and humor in itself is very important in survival. And this woman who's been very funny, you know, almost strangely throughout that or ordeal, at the moment as she leaves and she's liberated by the SWAT team and she's brought down to exit the, 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 um, the concert hall and she goes down the, uh, a set of stairs and unfortunately uh, down the stairs, she described what is that, that hill of bodies uh, mm -hmm. because of all the people there. And she goes from laughter to profound sadness and tears and distress. And it happens in half a second. And it is the most human and the most powerful uh, moment in documentaries that we've done that that moment still grips me to my core whenever I, 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 I see it. I have one, it's, uh, uh, if you have the time. Of course. It's, uh, it's uh, as Jules was saying, uh, Inside the, the rock, uh, rock uh, venue um, club, uh, when those three terrorists um, arrive and start to shoot at everyone, and they will not stop for, as Drew said, uh, a good hour and a half, two hours. Uh, this rock uh, venue, imagine there is almost 2,000 people in it. Um, uh, everyone is going to or escape, uh, working on each other sometimes, uh, or play dead. And so you have to imagine this kind of sea of bodies, and you don't know who is alive and who is dead. And among these uh, people, those bodies, you have, uh, uh, you have Valérie and Nicolas, two beautiful uh, people that we met. Uh, who pretend to be dead and they lay down uh, and you know those terrorists are shooting everywhere around them. Uh, they cannot see each other because the way they just fell down on the floor to protect themselves, they're not facing each other. 
and their body is not touching each other either, except for a little inch of their two fingers touching. And their two fingers are going to keep touching each other uh, during the entire ordeal. And, and the way they express that, just this tiny little touch, this tiny feeling the other at the end of their finger made them not go crazy, made them stand still, even though bullets were flying. And it was this love, this bond that this, that made them, you know, and also they, because they, they knew, they knew they had a, a newborn at home waiting for them. Uh, but it is this, this, this little, voila, skin that, that made them strong enough. This, this is one of the love story that in the film that, you know, always, uh, anyway. Yeah, that one was, to say the least, heartbreaking and profoundly moving at the same time. So just really, I, I think you did a masterful job of just um, explaining all of these personal stories in the most respectful and kind way. And it's uh, just another piece of history that you guys have captured that I'm so grateful for. I mean, I live in Southern California and now I feel so much more connected to these Paris attacks and I didn't know anybody in Paris at the time. So I'm, I'm just in, enormously grateful for your talent and for your your work ethic and just how kind you both are. It, it's uh, our parents did a good job and we thank them <laughs> every day because it's, I think it's, you know, we, we are all a product of our education and our, our upbringing. Our, our parents uh, are the reason we are this way. I think they've always raised us with, with uh, you know, some, some good set of values and, and looking at the other and, and being filled with empathy, but also mm -hmm. try to, at the moment where, you know, life can go either way. It's, it's important to, to keep in perspective, try to find the good in, in, the, in everything. And so that helped a lot. That helped a lot. Do we know anything about the band? I remember the years after the lead singer was obviously very angry. Do we know how they're doing? Not really. I think the um, uh, Tom Hanks' son did a, a documentary. I think that aired on HBO. I think it was pretty interesting. About, I did too. Uh, but um, we've been interviewed them. They had been interviewed before, so we were trying to show a story that had not been seen, at least. And so we did not uh, contact them for that uh, for that project. So do not know exactly how mm -hmm. they're doing. And now, what are you guys working on now? So we just finished, and it just aired uh, a month ago. In, to continue, we're big groupies of the fire department, so you'll understand this one. <laughs> we did a documentary on the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral. Oh, okay. And same thing with these incredible firefighters, but also that uh, great team of, of the people working at Notre Dame itself, whether it was the, the, the priest, whether it was the, the people working on the, on, uh, on the restoration or the people uh, uh, working with the paintings and all that, and how that kind of same thing, that wave of humanity all rose up at the same moment to try to save here it was not a person, it was not, but it was kind of a, like a person. You know, Notre Dame, is more than just, you know, stones and a building or a church. It's really something that is at the, at the, at the, uh, gives us a sense of identity. And it's also, you know, either for religious, for architectural, for touristic reason. 
it is one of the few places in the world where everyone knows about it. A lot of anyone who has goes to Paris mostly have gone there. And so it is that symbol for uh, almost uh, a thousand years of the best of uh, human nature, again, what we can do fantastically well. And it's a place that unites people. And so to see this symbol that was about to disappear and that profound sense of loss that I think everyone was experiencing, it was kind of a, no, we cannot lose that. This cannot disappear. And it's that fight of the firefighters willing to put their, their lives on the line, even though there was nobody to sign, to save. They said, we'll, we'll take the risk. And the, and the head of the fire department took, uh, there was that moment where they said, we have half an hour. In half an hour, it's probably going to collapse, except if we send a special commando of uh, 20 firefighters up and that prevent the, uh, the, the flames from, uh, from reaching the bells. And if the bells go down, then everything collapses. And they make that, um, they make that, uh, that choice to, 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 to be ready to commit the, the ultimate sacrifice. So again, it is these values of the best of humanity that we see during the worst that we always try to, to show. So we'll, uh, I think you can find it actually on, uh, if you have Hulu, you'll find it mm -hmm. on demand. It's called um, uh, Notre Dame. Uh, Our Lady of Paris. Voilà. Our Lady of Paris. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so glad I finally tracked you down. It's been <laughs> months and months and months. Um, I'm so thankful We're very for your discreet. time. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Um, again, so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. No, and thank you for your show, by the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic to, to speak with you. So loving it. Thank you. <laughs> Kate, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. I want to thank Jules and Gedeon and remind you to check out both of their great documentaries and the other that they mentioned currently on Hulu. Remind you to subscribe to this show and to leave a five-star review. Jump in the Facebook group, Reality Life with Kate Casey, to talk about this episode and others. Um, throughout the week on my social media, I will post for you what to watch this week in unscripted TV, sometimes scripted. <laughs> My Twitter is at Kate Casey. My Instagram is at Kate Casey CA. You can learn about what I'm watching, what I'm working on, who I'm interviewing, and a little bit about my life. Um, my Patreon is has bonus episodes. You can find it at patreon.com backslash Kate Casey. And I'm wishing you all a great week. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and others and just reminding you all. Remember the stories of those that survived mentioned in this episode and that we all can rely on one another in our darkest days. Look forward to circling back with you on Friday. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.